episode 14 of Sounding Board. We've been away for six weeks or so now, as I showed as much aptitude for the technical challenges of running a podcast as Vanilla Ice did at rapping back in the day. And that reference is far from irrelevant as this episode, the first of three we hope to bring you in the next month or so, is devoted to the genre of hip-hop, rap, or whatever you want to label it, all due to a certain 20-year anniversary that now stands as something of a watershed for the genre. After that, we'll be continuing with the spoken word theme as we review Sleaf of Mod's latest platter, English Tapas. While I'm joined today by David Cox. Hello, David. Are you ready for more conspiracy theories after filleting the circumstances surrounding the death of Kurt Cobain in an earlier episode? I'm afraid to say yes. Right. Uh, I listened to a five and a half hour podcast surround, uh, well, with two Irish guys exploring the conspiracy theories which uh, surround the deaths of Tupac and Biggie, which end up with them accusing the Illuminati of being behind the two hits. So by all means, if we've got four hours, I'll get into it. <laughs> well, there you are. Um, please do still continue listening. <laughs> it's probably not going to be four hours, we hope. Um, Josh, Josh Wells is our new newcomer to the pod, the latest person. Um, hi, Josh. Um, and Josh has been called in because he has a sort of broad knowledge of the topic. And I uh, hope it won't be his last appearance either. Um, but first of all, fellas, some, some music news. Any music news and tidbits that you've uh, picked up on in the last week or so? Uh, well, I think there's been uh, a couple of things um, on the hip-hop theme. Uh, I've noticed that uh, Snoop Dogg has released a video in which uh, he kills a clown that looks remarkably like Donald Trump. Um, fortunately, uh, the gun only has a little bang flag that comes out of it, so he doesn't really take him out. I think there might be some glitter involved as well. Um, but amazingly, this is you know caused the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, to feel the need to tweet about it and say that he thinks Snoop Dogg should be, you know, jailed for threatening the president. You know, oh, yeah. kind of slightly, slightly unbelievable, really. Yeah, you kind of think in the days before social media, he probably would have risen above it. Although I'm not sure Trump would ever. Have risen above it. <laughs> um, no, another president would have. I'm no defender of Trump, but Snoop Dogg has gone to jail for killing a man. Well, that's, that, that is true. So it's not like an empty threat. <laughs> not really. <laughs> we'll leave that one there. And David, do you, you've got something to mention? Again, uh, related to hip-hop, Azalea Banks uh, has just been, I think even today, she's agreed to some anger management uh, courses after admitting to losing her uh, temper uh, uh, and memorably biting a security, a nightclub security guard on the breast. Ouch. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've all been there, guys. But, yeah. um, <laughs> I was going to say, I can only imagine really how that is. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, Azalea Banks, is, um, who is herself an amazing talent, yeah. is now in anger management, and um, I hope she feels better soon. Right. I hope they both feel better yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah. And my decidedly non-hip-hop uh, bit of news is uh, surrounds Ed Sheeran's popularity, which uh, there's been some complaints this week that it's totally skewing the charts. And uh, on a previous episode, we've discussed streaming. Um, mm. And the big question at the moment is, should streaming be used as a base for calculating a song's chart position, which I think is something that's well beyond what we want to talk about today, <laughs> but might be something that we, we return to. Um, and there's also been a debate about what constitutes a single, you know, this idea of tracks, you know, which could be album tracks or several tracks by one artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can go back to Frankie Goes to Hollywood for that happening before, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think things are changing a bit. So I think the whole kind of 
credibility of the charts or certainly the whole nature of the charts as we know mm. it is being slightly called into question so mm. um, no time to debate this here save to point you in the direction of Pitchfork's review of Ed Sheeran's new LP Divide which is a little harsh <laughs> after this break we're going to be coming back and delving into the world of hip hop <laughs> So, as promised, today, today we're devoting most of our discussion to a genre which, when you consider its arguable dominance of the music industry over the past three decades, we've paid very scant attention to in our previous 13 episodes. Rather than tackling the whole hip-hop narrative, however, we're going to use a key anniversary as a launching point for our discussion. So, David, why was 1997 such a pivotal year for hip-hop? It was an amazing year musically, but also it was a notable year, not just socially, but also in terms of the main proponents around that time, because it was 20 years ago this month that Biggie was killed in a drive-by incident in LA, and only six months prior to that, Tupac was killed in a very similar incident in Las Vegas. Two of the leading lights of the hip-hop world at that time, and actually it wasn't long after that that the kind of golden era of hip-hop began, which I think pretty much continues to this day. I think you're right that it, as a genre, it's, it's predominant. Yeah. Um, mm. But that before that, there was a, the rise of gangsterism. I mean, the, the, the roots are in things like Fuck the Police from 88, but really comes over after the 92 riots in LA. Um, and and you see a lot of pictures of these guys surrounded by genuine gang members from the Bloods or Crips throwing gang signs, looking a bit absurd. But then when you realise that these guys actually died as a result of what they were being artists about, makes it a bit more real. But thank goodness there hasn't been a tremendous amount of violence in hip-hop since Biggie's death 20 years ago thank goodness yeah. but, it, but it, is an, it is an amazing thing that two of the biggest artists in the world were killed violently and the uh, murderers have never been caught yeah it's still unsolved isn't it yeah. yeah and on that on that point I mean in terms of the conspiracy theories that we mentioned earlier on I mean there are various things like the, the Randall Sullivan book Labyrinth um, the sort of supposed or the which, which I think posited the idea that Shoot Knight might have been involved the Death Row mm. Records owner um, the Nick Broomfield movie um, of course which was another thing that happened a little while afterwards um, what is the general kind of mood in terms of the conspiracy theory landscape well let's say? let's stick to the facts because yeah. otherwise it will be four hours yeah but what is known is that there were there was basically a east coast west coast beef so on the west coast coming out of LA there's Death Row Records run by this guy called Suge Knight, who was an ex-Blood gang member. Yeah. Okay? So his stable of artists included people like Tupac. Yeah. Okay. Then on the East Coast, there's um, a group of artists, Jay-Z by this time, uh, Biggie himself, Puff Daddy, who are coming out of Bad Boy Records. Right. Now, hip-hop as a genre comes out of the Bronx, so there's a continental dislike for New York in particular and the East Coast in general, but there's a real beef. Now, this beef does exist and led to the deaths of these two people, but it might also have suited certain magazines such as Vibe or The Source because it's a little bit like Britpop 
but just with higher stakes because it shifted units to talk up this beef. They did a lot of diss tracks between the coasts mm-hmm. where they made a lot of quite explicit threats and claims, such as Tupac claimed that he'd had sex with Biggie's wife. Uh, Biggie replied in a curiously uh, titled diss track called The Long Kiss Goodnight, which Frankie Boyle in a, uh, in a <laughs> podcast maintains is like basically an extended homosexual overtone to Tupac, and that they both faked their deaths and now live quite happily as gay men in, in some part of the Caribbean. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. You may or may not believe. Um, <laughs> but what is known is that when Biggie went to the West Coast... Six months following Tupac's death in a drive-by, to promote his latest single, Hypnotize, which was when he went massive. Mm. You know, Juicy was a big hit, but mm. this was when he was, he was about to go absolutely stellar. His um, West Coast security detail was peopled by two constituents, corrupt police, LAPD, and gang members. Mm. And the gang members affiliated themselves with the Crips because Shook Knight the West Coast mogul was a ex-blood. So basically, Tupac had bloods as his security whenever he was around, around and about. And when Biggie was on the West Coast, he had Crips as his security detail. It is an absolute recipe for disaster. Yeah. It is incendiary. Yes. That yeah. you would have an East Coast rapper with LA-based gangs providing the security detail... In, in direct opposition to the blood-oriented West Coast label. Yeah. It, 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 it's insane. Insane. Yes. And, um, I mean, would you recommend the books, the book and the, and the film that I mentioned? The Broomfield thing is scurrilous, but then that's Broomfield. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a, a interesting enough documentary called Murder Rap, which looks into them both and posits that basically Suge Knight was behind them both. Yeah, because um, Tupac was about to leave death row and go on his own. Because Tupac, I don't know how much you know about Tupac. So like, forgive me, like, I don't know no, no. Know. I, um, I think our audience as well could probably do with a little bit of uh, memory jogging. Tupac yeah. came from an interesting lineage of black activism. Yeah. So his mother uh, was involved in the Panthers during the sixties mm. and stuff, right. mm. um, and he himself. Um, moved around via Baltimore onto the West Coast from the East Coast um, and was, all other things being equal, a better actor than he was rapper, I would say. I don't think he was a particularly uh, skilled or natural hip-hop artist. And he was certainly no gangster. Um, But he was a great actor. And so he went to the fame school, amongst other things. And one one of the things I I enjoyed finding out about during the research for this is that... um, he danced in the the fame school's uh, perf- uh, performance of the Nutcracker. So he did, this guy did ballet before <laughs> yeah, he got yeah. into um, the thug life. And the, th- the thing that happened to him was that he he went to jail. He, the, the, he, he accidentally shot a child in the head and killed him. The, 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 quite a lot of bad things happened to Tupac. Some of which he was probably complicit in. For example, he was convicted of rape. Mm. Um, which does not make him a nice man, like regardless of what he says in some of his songs, because some of his songs are quite g- good. Like he, he did a great song about his mum and like keep yeah. your head up and stuff. Like some of this is quite good because we'll get to it later. Maybe hip hop is full of puerile, disgusting misogyny. Mm. 
Tupac was a man of some contradictions. But anyway, he went to jail for that. It was Suge Knight who paid his bail and got him out. He was not doing well in there because he was an ex-ballet dancer. He could not survive in an L.A. jail for long. When he came out, he got the thug life tattoos and really changed his image and became this guy. But I think he kind of adopted the mantle. It was a big debate about him. I don't think he was a hustler from the streets. In fact, I know he wasn't. But he started to adopt that persona and then started to, I don't know, start to live that life. Fascinating. I've seen the film Gridlocked. I don't know if anybody else has seen that. I mean, yeah, it's a good actor. Tom Off is a brilliant mm. film. Yeah, very, very enjoyable film. Mm. So I'll probably return to some of the kind of personalities in a bit, but talking about the music, and it was a spectacular year for music in hip-hop, 97. Um, Josh, um, I mean, some of the albums that were out, we had Wu- Wu-Tang Clans Forever. Um, mm. We had Biggie's own Life After Death. We had... Uh, in My Lifetime, Volume 1, from Jay-Z, who was emerging at that point. Mm. Um, Puff Daddy's No Way Out. Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly. And, interestingly, um, Slim Shady EP from Eminem, who was perhaps like first of the next generation of artists being managed by a previous generation, in this case, Dr. Dre. So, um, any favourites amongst those particular um, releases? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, given the context of what we're chatting about with Biggie's anniversary, I think Life After Death is probably the one that uh, I kind of know best. Um, it's a little bit late to the Wu-Tang game, um, although I'm kind of catching up as the more I learn about hip-hop, the more I realise what a big hole that is <laughs> in my uh, in my listening. But um, I think what uh reason Biggie kind of endures is that I think he... He just has that kind of smooth wordplay um, and the the poetry element is really interesting in rap music uh, because he really takes that on a stage. I think if you listen to very, very early hip-hop, it's lots of kind of just couplets and relatively simple kind of rhyming structures, but he really has this, you know, quite... It sounds quite relaxed and quite low register so he makes it sound like he's not really trying but actually it's all these kind of complicated multi-syllable rhymes and internal rhymes and all that sort of stuff and I think the sort of the technicality is why he kind of endures as well as his kind of ability to turn a phrase and um, also the the production choices that he and the sort of bad boy team around him make in terms of just really good hooks that are catchy um, because I think that is one of the things that some, turn some people off rap music uh, if it's just people kind of spitting bars <laughs> for you know three minutes with no kind of melodic hook but he was really good I mean Hypnotize in particular you know you just you've heard that song once and you can sing the chorus back and it's yeah. a kind of interesting um which happens a lot in hip-hop being unashamedly commercial whilst also rapping about kind of gangster life in the streets and being real and not seeing an issue with those things so I, you know, I think for me particularly that, that album um, is kind of what stands out to me alongside maybe Missy Elliott, Missy Elliott who uh, that's sort of the whole rapper producer combination which you see repeated in a few different things actually because I think uh, Fun Crusher Plus was out this year as well which is by a guy called LP who also kind of epitomises the underground producer rapper combination and um, I think she really sets a template there for not only being a rapper and producer but also uh, you know doing that uh, as a uh, female MC as well you know really influential there okay um, David any particular creme de la creme points from those those albums or any others well I give a shout out to Wu-Tang Forever yeah <laughs> it is their biggest selling album it's not their best I think um, 36 Chambers their first one is, is their best mm. 
it's a it's a fascinating album. It's a double album. So Rizzo, who's the producer, basically organized all the tracks and said, "Give me your best verses." So it was like a, right. a sort yeah. of um, audition. But because all them greedy bastards were keeping back their good shit for their solo projects, it's basically Method Man the whole time. Like if you listen to Al knowing that, you hear how many verses Method Man spits. It's, it's just him, because he had such a good work ethic. Mm. So you barely hear from ODB, for example, yeah. because goodness knows what he's up to. <laughs> Although he himself, with Return to the 36 Chambers, the dirty version... His solo album is probably the greatest rap album of all time. Mm. I think that he is also the greatest rapper of all time, I would say. Because mm. interesting. I, I, interesting. I, mm. my, my, my dad's into jazz, right? And so mm. he, he told me some interesting stuff about Louis Armstrong. One of the great things about Louis Armstrong, technically, is that he was the first jazz trumpeter to find the notes between the notes. Mm. I thought it was a really interesting way of describing what he did. I think that ODB... It, 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 so to Josh's point, like the, the kind of public enemy, the kind of early days of hip hop was was quite, I don't know, like the old school rappers were very doggerel couplets, as Josh said. Yeah. Then you go into complex, multi-syllable internal rhyming that all that stuff epitomised by someone like Biggie. Then ODB goes another direction entirely. If you, if you look at his lyrics written down, they don't make any sense. They don't scan. They don't it even so rhyme. Good. But then you hear him, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. I just think that he found the notes between the notes in rap. And I would have a shout-out in particular for the lead single on Wu-Tang Forever, which mm-hmm. was a track called Triumph. Right. It has the single best verse in all of rap. It is absurd. Right. And it's, it's, it's quite rightly renowned for it. I looked it up on Rap Genius, and um, people like Moss Death and stuff mm-hmm. say, oh, this is, this is the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. It, and it was done by a relatively obscure member of the Wu-Tang called Inspector Deck. Yeah. Who didn't again contribute too much to to the Wu Tang, but what he did do was this one verse, which is absurd, and we should put it on the Spotify playlist because mm. anyone who hasn't heard that verse should do. It's mm. it's the best thing that's ever been recorded by the Wu Tang and by short extension, therefore, in hip hop. And there's been some good debate and good discussion there of of you know what what constitutes a good hip hop record, but of course that brings us round to the topic of. What is hip hop? Is it a bit like, and in particular, I'm fascinated in the difference between hip hop and R and B. Is it the difference between running and walking in the Olympics? Is it just that one, as soon as people start singing, does that cease to be hip hop? Or I don't know. I mean, surely it's pretty meshed. Well, I think in in terms of the terminology, um, hip hop um, is often used interchangeably with rap, but more accurately, rap is really a part of hip hop culture. So, hip hop. is I think there's sort of four elements traditionally. Like there's MCing, DJing, um, breakdancing, and graffiti, yeah. um, and that makes up hip hop culture. So rap music is really kind of part of hip hop. Um, and then I think sort of to come to your question, the difference between rap and R and B. Well, it's just subjective, isn't it? Really, I suppose it probably depends more on maybe the subject matter. I think R and B tends to be more concerned with those uh, typical pop subjects of love yeah. and loss, yeah. And, yeah. and not that rap doesn't address those, but um, it tends to be more that. And maybe, yeah, it's, it's sort of a bit more commercially minded. I mean, obviously, old R and B was completely different and was more like, of course, you know, yeah. uh, mm. sort of rock, really. But um, yeah. I suppose it, it always seems to me there's a slightly hilarious conversation going on between rap and R&B of 
loads of guys talking about how their players and running around with all their, their hoes and bitches and R&B sort of going, why wouldn't anyone be faithful to me? I'm so miserable and alone. There's so many of those kind of conversations. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the sort of, yeah, really if it's just singing all the way through, then it's R&B. But more and more artists, I think, are blurring that line nowadays. It's mm-hmm. becoming harder and harder to tell. And I think, David, you'd argue for the postmodern nature of hip hop in some respects. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a it's a collage genre. Yeah. Most notably, the, the sample. Yeah. yeah. You know, let alone borrowing from I, I don't know like the Wu Tang obviously has a bunch of stuff from kung fu films that I've never heard of. Like all their albums are just full of samples of people basically doing some chop suey. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I would also say that. Hip hop is an evolving genre. It is preeminent globally, I think, in the in the kind of the music world. It isn't as simple as saying rap sounds like people like a kind of verbal drum solo and R and B or or something else is singing because I don't know. Like since Kanye's eight oh eights and heartbreaks, mm. where he sort of sang up, you know, throughout ODB had a yeah. half singing, half rapping. So no, yeah. we were listening to a song earlier today, that player hater yeah. off of Life After Death, yeah. where Biggie <laughs> ill-advisedly tries to sing. <laughs> so I don't think it's as simple as that. Mm. No, no. Coming back to the political, social, and cultural context, mm. obviously the nineteen eighties, you know, particularly Public Enemy, there was a lot of kind of in your face kind of political elements mm. of what they were doing. Um, maybe De La Soul kind of calm that down a bit with the way they approach things but come the time of gangster rap I think you mentioned it earlier on David it had been sort of uh, prefaced by the cataclysm that was the LA riots do you want to talk a bit more about that and how that fed into the anger that was behind a lot of this music yeah I mean like I know that we were out the other day and I and I was boring on about the OJ Made in America documentary which is stunning I have to say anybody gets the chance to watch it it's on BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK at the moment for another 10 days or so I think I mean, it's so, essential yeah. viewing won the Oscar for best documentary whatever that means it's eight hours long so that's kind of worth saying as a caveat, but that's a very good overview of a, of a picture, of, particularly of LA and the West Coast of America, where both these murders happened yeah. eventually. So there was an uprising in Watts in, I think, 1965, which yeah. is around the time that Tupac was born and his mother was very much involved in that. So that's kind of a bit of context. But actually, the LA riots is the end of a prolonged 12-year period which spans the presidencies of the first Bush... Um, and Reagan yeah. and this depending on who you speak to was basically and if you've watched something like The Wire it was a war on the urban poor and how was that manifested well that was manifested in a number of ways not least significant cuts in federal funding on certain things such as subsidised housing that was cut by 82% job training by 63% community development programmes by 40% and then Bush Senior as his last act as president vetoed a 30 billion urban aid bill mm. this left us with a number of things not least of which um, spending on prisons in California exceeded that spent on higher education and there were more black men between I think it was 18 and 24 in prison than in higher education or in college as a result. Oh, I believe yeah. mm. it was it was it was crazy. So I think by the end of the nineteen nineties, there are eight hundred thousand black men between ages of twenty and twenty nine in prison, with six hundred thousand in college. It's shocking, like truly, yeah, truly awful. The LA riots has two main flashpoints. The first one, 
I didn't know about until I watched the OJ um, documentary, which is the the case of Latasha Harlins. I don't know if you've heard of Latasha Harlins, Josh. Only after yes. watching, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Uh, uh, no. Only is this the person that was shot in the convenience? Yeah. yeah. So a fifteen-year-old black girl was shot in the back of the head by a Korean store owner. The Korean store owner was found not guilty and given five hundred hours community service. Latasha Harlins herself comes up a lot in the artists we've discussed songs. Mm-hmm. So Tupac sings about it numerous times, most notably in Keep Your Head Up, um, mm-hmm. the song I mentioned earlier. Ice Cube references the incident in a track called Black Korea. It's interesting because it does relate to the second incident, which is the, um, which is the beating of Rodney King, mm-hmm. which again, uh, the four white cops who reached the court were found not guilty by an entirely white jury and things kicked off. And during those riots, 60% of all the shops looted and burned were Korean-owned. So they were thinking about Natasha at the time, definitely. Um, but that leads up to OJ, but I wanted to get too much into it. Um, the decision by um, the district attorney to have him try downtown with a mixed jury, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, Venice Beach, where he would should have been tried based on his address by an all-white jury because it was an absolute tinderbox. And and watching this documentary, you can only imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, the reaction of L.A. if he'd been found guilty. Oh, it would Mm. have been totally incendiary. I mean, you used the word earlier, but yes, it it would have been further riots, wouldn't there? Yeah, Yeah. they would have burnt the city to the ground, I think, Mm, regardless of their position on whether he was innocent or guilty. One interesting thing is that um, the, the trial itself was incredibly polarising. So before went in, I think it was like 25% uh, of black people thought he was uh, guilty and 70, you know, 20% of um, white people thought he was innocent or whatever. And it just got, the, the dials just got turned up to the point where basically if you were a black person in LA, you thought that he was innocent and you'd go to the cross about it and f- absolute vice versa if you were white. So mm. it was, it just... It's so much more than just about the alleged OJ's alleged murder. I suppose sure. of those two it becomes people. symbolic. Really. Yeah, absolutely. And th- this is this is the 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 seedbed for some of the most amazing music which has come out of America ever. Mm. Like, and it, pretty soon after too. So, for example, in, by September of '92, if the riots were in April May, you've got Ice T releasing "Cop Killer," which is an insanely controversial track, even saying the title is still, you know, sticks on the, in the throat kind of thing. But Dre's The Chronic and Snoop's Doggy Style were also released in 92. This is the start of gangsterism. Mm. And it is, you cannot see that as an accident. So Ed Sheeran being the biggest selling artist in the world right now is a cultural emanation and we all have to live with that. Because you get the art you deserve, right? So this art came out of the crucible mm. of these tensions mm. yeah. and it led to a golden era of hip hop mm. that actually funny enough probably ended with the death of Biggie because the next big thing to come out of hip hop was I'll Be Missing You mm. which is a dreadfully mawkish um, abomination quite possibly the worst track of all time <laughs> yeah the but music. I yeah. would say probably <laughs> the biggest selling rap song yeah. of all time yeah. extraordinary do you, do you think mm. that uh, those elements also shifted hip hop over from east coast based to West Coast because obviously the sort of the whole G funk thing and which kind of came out of the Dr Dre and the Snoop things and you know that sort of again that crucible actually moving 
hip hop away from where it started in New York. Yeah, it's a really good point. I would say so. Yeah, which is yeah quite an interesting. And, sort of and then I think it, it grew from there, and then a few years later, you have people like Outcast in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. And then rappers in Miami and, and other U.S. cities, and it became a kind of you know not only a, a pan U.S. phenomenon, but yes. but a global phenomenon. Yeah, yeah really good point. And there's tons of good British stuff as well, which we'll probably mention when we come on to mm. look at hip hop now a bit mm. later on. Um, just a quick word on the immediate fruits. I mean, Ice T, Ice Cube. Any kind of favourite tracks from that kind of era? The, the immediately in the wake of the riots, or, or? Um, I'm I'm not going to struggle with the chronology of it all. Yeah. Um, when did the day was a good day come out? Oh, I, couldn't, I wouldn't know. Uh, but it would probably be around that time, right? I, yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure because uh, you know one of the lines in there was like today was a good day. I didn't even have to use my AK. Yeah. You know which uh, <laughs> which sort of seems which is again we were sort of talking earlier about it looking almost slightly comical. These guys throwing up gang signs in big baggy clothes on the front of albums. But when you when you realise it, you know maybe not that artist at that particular point is likely to take up firearms necessarily. But he really is talking about a reality. It, it does it does add a weight to it, I think, mm-hmm. and takes it from being sort of slightly glib and funny to actually being quite sinister and, and kind of sad, really. I yeah. think you really start to go, yeah, actually, there's real pathos in, in that line. Oh, there's no mm-hmm. mucking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hip-hop's artists don't tend to use, or haven't tended to use their own names. Um, I'm not sure if there's any exceptions. Do tweet us at soundingboard69. <laughs> Um, but you know, for instance, Andre Young is Dre, uh, Christopher Wallace is Biggie, um, Biggie and Biggie and uh, um, uh, Puff Daddy. You know, have got various kind of different <laughs> change their names as they've yeah, gone along. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. um, I mean, do, any 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 more uh, any thoughts on why that might be, fellas? Yeah. Well, I had a little think about this because it was one of my questions as I went into the research on this. I, I found a couple of potential ideas. Mm. One is um, the renaming. Um, the self-renaming done by um, generations of ex-slaves. Yes, yes. So Cassius Clay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, renaming himself Muhammad Ali. So that's part of, of black culture, I think. The yeah. reclaiming or mm. reinvention mm. through renaming mm. that was interesting. Um, also, it's about graffiti. So if, if Josh identified graffiti as one of the key kind of pillars of hip-hop culture, mm. you don't write your own name as a tag... But you still want to be discoverable and identifiable. Therefore, yeah. you come up with a, a nickname. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of it too. I thought some combination of those two things probably explains why MCs don't rap under their own names. They're, they're creating a persona, but it is identifiable and unique. Yeah, I mean, I read Nelson George's Hip Hop America um, in advance of this podcast, which is a tremendous read, very quick um, introduction to hip hop up till about 97, 98. Um, uh, really good history of the subject and uh, one thing I learned on this topic was that you know some of the kind of you know identifiable kind of African American names that you know they mentioned in Freakonomics actually mm. some of the studies there like things like Deshaun and mm. Antan and these kind of things are kind of corruptions in a way of like traditional sort of Western names but trying to get away from that and yeah. sort of introducing mm. a more African element so you know which I think is mm. really interesting it's not unique to hip hop either no. but, it, no. but it does happen elsewhere in black culture for example Howling Wolf I don't think he was christened well, with that name no no <laughs> I think we might have to check on that <laughs> um, just on a few gripes I mean people who don't like hip hop or are critical of it you know there's often good reason for that um, some of the things that 
hip-hop as a genre is accused of are homophobia, misogyny, puerility and violence. Obviously the violence we've talked about, mm. you know, and that's, that's pretty incontrovertible. Um, I mean, I think there's an argument that all of these have lessened in the last 20 years. And again, it sort of brings out this kind of 97 being a watershed mm. point. But, but Josh, any, any thoughts on that? And do you think there's sort of... Well, I think it's, it's one of these criticisms that I think uh, is simultaneously fair and a bit ridiculous. Um, I think it's fair because I think you can pick up, um, you know, uh, 10 hip-hop albums and it wouldn't take you much listening to come across some homophobia, misogyny or um, puerile references to all sorts of things um but i think it's slightly ridiculous to sort of suggest that hip-hop is somehow unique in that i think mm. you go and listen to rock music over the last 60 years you know how, how many songs of famous rock bands done about sleeping with girls that are underage i mean you know all that sort of stuff and you think well no one really seems to bat an eyelid at that so um i think it's it's there um and i guess it it reflects attitudes of um people that are living and they you know they really think these things so I suppose with hip hop one of its main tenets is that people um, are bombastic and they are you know over the top and they have personas and there is a sort of um, an unspoken rule I think in hip hop that you almost kind of overstate what you're going to say so I don't know if necessarily everyone always thinks the things that they say but they kind of want to put it in almost to be purposefully offensive and shocking because it's this kind of I don't care what you think about me I don't care about what you know what you think about what I say I'm just going to say it anyway um you know and that's I mean it's still going on to pretty modern day times I mean Eminem has some pretty um oh, you know Lord. choice choice yeah. stuff in there um which he, I suppose he would justify as like well I'm taking on the persona of Slim Shady and I'm I'm just sort of talking about this stuff because, you know, it does go on and I think it should be talked about and it's just what's in my head and I'm an artist and I have the, you know, the right to say whatever I think. And I guess I have some sympathy with that. Um, but I think I would agree that people in general are moving away from that and are certainly trying to think more about how they refer to certain groups of people and are, you know, concentrating a little bit more maybe on... Uh, sort of just promoting themselves, I guess, <laughs> to saying how good they are rather than denigrating um, other people. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's fair, but I, I think you're being... Uh, I think you're being unfair if you think only hip-hop does this stuff. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. No, that's a point that Nelson George makes in that book, that, you know, it's a societal attitude going back to the foundation of the United States and the foundation of yeah. other countries in Europe as well. David, any thoughts on this, on particular elements of it? I think it's a cross that hip-hop fans have to bear. Yeah. I think there is a dreadful amount of misogyny, homophobia and violence in your typical hip-hop track up till and including today. And I don't see it as a defence that they're hiding behind a persona, like, oh, I didn't say it, Slim Shady said it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, no, I, I that, agree. That, that's but a that's defense of a rascal. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I think it's a defence of a, a yeah. rascal. Um, it's very, very difficult to justify, and I wouldn't be able to. No. I think it's awful, um, and I wish it wasn't such a big part of it. And I, I've looked at mitigating... Like one thing I read, I think I read or I heard, was that... Because of the absolute predominance of jail time amongst black urban males of a certain age um, and the fact that during their time in jail 
they are expected to prevail upon the comforts of other men to get them through their time. Mm. So you remember Avon Barksdale in The Wire, for example, saying quite memorably, you only ever do two days, the day you go in and the day you come out. As if, like, whatever happens in jail stays in jail. Sure. Yeah. But those guys are coming back out onto the streets and everyone knows that they're most likely to have had a homosexual experience during their time in jail, maybe even the day before yesterday. And so it is incumbent upon them, they feel, in order to maintain their name and their credibility, to really disavow that in the strongest possible terms. And that's why there's such a lot of homophobia in it. Because mm. if it didn't bother you, then why is it coming up all the time? And maybe they know it's going to, if it's a diss track or whatever, they know it's going to trigger something in the person that they're talking about. And because even if they've both gone through it, they know that that's likely to be a sort of... Well, exactly. So, yeah. exactly. Biggie and Tupac. Like I said, that, the Biggie diss track is called The Long Kiss Goodnight. He talks a lot about kissing Tupac goodnight. It's a kind of a weird angle mm. to take. On, on a slightly different tack, I think the other thing that I would say in answer to this is that there's loads of hip-hop that is positive, that has something good to say, that is poetic, that is clever um, and funny, um, and it's, it's, it's definitely part of it, and I, I agree, I think it just has to be a cross you have to bear to, you know, to the extent of you can't go back and change the old albums that have some good stuff mixed in with some nasty stuff, but there's loads of, you know, I, I think Kendrick Lamar, who also interestingly... Um, I think that's his real name. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, Same so, with Danny Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so mm. there are a couple more people sort of, you know, perhaps that slightly more open, you know, kind of feeling, but a really very, you know, we'll wrap up real life and have some stuff in there, but really actually are trying to make positive steps like track like I, which is, you know, kind of all about I love myself and, you know, self-respect um, and taking that forward into your life and, you know, trying to approach life from a positive um mindset uh, you know that is very evident too and a lot of political kind of revolutionary um you know screw the system um let's kind of rethink how we do things which actually loads of people would agree with i think loads of people could agree with lots of our political systems are broken and i think there's a lot of that in there that's very articulately put and kind of well researched and very clever and done in rhyme in a song which is even more impressive yeah. absolutely um, which brings us on to hip hop today we focus necessarily on on that period the gangster mm. rap period really just because otherwise you know we would be here for longer <laughs> in the OJ Simpson documentary um, so since um, and maybe even a little bit before you know hip hop the whole span of it I mean how how is hip hop doing now I mean as we mentioned at the start I get the impression that it's just totally culturally dominant I mean it's incredible how much it's seeped into consciousness through the clothes um, through um, people's manner of speech mm. um, all, you know shopping all, all mm. sorts of you know incredible kind of elements politics mm. um, you know how, everybody's clearly in rude health um, and there are the mega stars who've emerged in the last sort of 10, 15 years, such mm. as Jay Z and, and Kanye and Lafley, mm. Kendrick Lamar, you know, seem to have really put it on a good footing. Arguably, Beyonce, I don't know whether you would count her as hip hop or not, is bringing mm. back to that debate. Thoughts, fellas? Yeah. Uh, I think it seems to me, in terms of music, it definitely seems to be the dominant medium. Uh, I think if you also look at how much it has transferred over to other cultures outside of America um, and has been very kind of successfully 
taken up and uh, taken on you know, all sorts of diverse groups from South Africa and Britain and France and Spain and you know all sorts of different places seem to be able to use this particular form and really make it their own. It seems very adaptable, which I think is one of the reasons that um, it it really has prevailed. And also, I guess it's a real music that's come from people that are urban and feel oppressed and I think increasingly as more and more of the world population tends to be drawn into urban living and lots of us are feeling oppressed right even those of us that are doing pretty well you know in comparison um, I think that some of those same frustrations that come up in hip-hop I think a lot of people feel like it gives voice to those frustrations and then they can kind of take it on for themselves but I've been um, in my uh, job actually we do a religion and hip-hop series and um, so it's been interesting for me. I've started to see how much hip hop has started to be taken seriously academically. Mm. There are courses being taught on it. Um, and so I think, you know, whether it's in intellectual life, whether it's in sort of cultural life, I mean, just look at how many rap verses there are in pop songs. I mean, it's, you know, it's just become a complete... It, people use hip hop to sell pop songs. That's that's how influential it's become. It's like the cool bit. <laughs> it's not the pop song anymore. It's like to make this pop song relevant, I need to have some rapping in it. Yeah, um, mm. which I think is a, a real a real kind of shift. And uh, yeah, uh, it seems to be doing well. But there, there's some drawbacks on that in terms of commodification of it and perhaps a watering down of its original values, watering down of quality. Some more people just jump on bandwagons. I mean, I don't know if you. I mean, is it more mainstream now to to use that? Um, that stick to beat it with I don't know I mean like, artists like Drake are very divisive I know you're mm, yeah. not a big fan Josh no not um, hugely uh, gets stuck in my head it annoys me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but he's doing the right thing yeah, yeah he is always well, making a lot of money isn't um, yeah. I mean I would say that I think that hip hop is in rude health and has never been stronger mm-hmm. and it's interesting well, from, from looking back over my life if, like the last time I was on this podcast I was waxing lyrical about Nirvana and I said the only good thing that come out of Nevermind was in utero and then like <laughs> Forgot, you know, forget it. Right, and if you but if you take half a step back, chaps, how much vital guitar music has been released since ninety four, you know, ninety seven or whatever uh, in, in this twenty year meager, period? Meager, yeah. And so, like Neil and I, you know, Sir Neil, formerly of this parish, um, were discussing this idea that now that Trump and Brexit have happened, and we'll get onto this from the Sleaford Mods, maybe. Um, there's going to be like this resurgent of protest music and guitar bands and people are going to pick up and the next Fugazi and stuff like that you can forget it it's already happening and it's happening in hip hop Yeah, yeah but it's not going to be like some renaissance of the guitar band we don't need that no. we've already got it mm-hmm. and so like one of the jewels a band actually that Josh turned me on to um, is already releasing tracks which directly reference Trump his administration and they're doing it in quite a funny way, but they're also dead angry. And yeah. Killer Mike, one half of that pair, is the most articulate man on this. He was a big fan of Bernie Sanders. He's not a big fan of Hillary Clinton for a variety of reasons, mm. let alone Trump. Mm. Yeah. But if you listen to his interview with Scroobius Pip on Distraction Pieces, which is well worth listening to, he is the most articulate man on the stuff that we discussed during this podcast mm. about the experience of particularly... Uh, urban black males in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they are, as a as a genre, articulating that stuff faster and better than any other genre of music. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say if anybody's ever been to the South Side of Chicago or Anacostia in Washington DC or indeed South Central LA, the problems are far from behind us. 
So uh, yeah, I think I think this year there's been more gang related. De- we we're back up to the highest number of gang related deaths in America this year than ever than yeah. you know in history. So quick before we move on to discuss Sleep of Mods album, quick two or three favorite hip hop albums of all time from from both of you. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with the probably the album that made me realise that hip-hop was a genre I wanted to get into, which would be Stankonia by Outkast. Um, I just thought it's just the musical variety on that album made me go, this is this is something I really want to get involved with. Um, I'd also go for Black on Both Sides by Moss Def. Um, love that album. Uh, got introduced to it at university, so it sort of got look, good memories for me. Um, and... Yeah, and I think any uh, any of the Run the Jewels projects, um, all three have been pretty stellar uh, for me, just in terms of they're funny, they've got a lot to say, um, and they do it really well, and the production is excellent, and uh, Good Kid Mad City by Kendrick Lamar as well, um, in terms of storytelling and a cohesive concept album, which you know, you'd normally think of Yes and Genesis, right, for concept albums, but you know, <laughs> hip-hop does them too, and I thought Kendrick Lamar did an amazing job, not just with the individual songs, but with the whole concept on that album. Yeah, great, David. Mm. Well, I support all of those. I think that they're, f- they're some of my favourite albums of all time. Um, I would say that my en- my entry drug actually was um, Black Sunday by Cypress Hill, yeah. released right. in I think '93. Mm. I couldn't believe it when I heard I that. Saw them, <laughs> saw them live at Brixton. Oh, did you? <laughs> what was it like? Well, they, they smashed, they smashed up the all their synthesizers at the end in a kind of weird subversion of the rock yeah. template. Were they still throwing spliffs out into the crowd? Uh, I think there was that? a bit of that. Yeah, it was a great gig. I mean, like, I couldn't believe how amazing that album was when I heard yeah. it. It, yeah. Was, and it, and it, it actually led to something which was, a, it was perfect for me because it was a, a rock-rap hybrid before New Metal destroyed that as a you know, viable concept, <laughs> yeah. which was this... Uh, uh, soundtrack to an uh, to a, a film called Judgment Night, where they got the leading lights in metal to mm. to duet, I suppose, with the leading lights in um, in hip hop at the yeah. time. So people like Slayer and Ice T and stuff were, mm. were working together for the first time. It threw up some amazing. It was such a fecund um, time. Like uh, I would recommend, and we stick it on the, mm. the Spotify playlist. The Faith No More, Booyah Tribe, Another Body Murdered. Mm. Ne- I, I, to this day, I can't believe it when I hear it. It's so absurd. Yeah. Uh, I would. I would also just give a quick shout out to Section Eighty by Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. Um, he's come up a lot. I think he's a fantastic mm. artist um, and high power on that album. Is you know my jam. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I would also like to mention Atrocity Exhibition by um, Danny Brown, yeah. which you mentioned. Yeah. Like, again, Josh turned me on to him. He, I like it maybe because he sounds a little bit like Be Real out of Cypress Hill. He's certainly got, got a very unusual voice, voice yeah. mm. but holy heckins. Like, this guy, he, he, a little bit like the ODB. I don't know if he's going to make old bones, <laughs> but he is. his energy is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I'd really recommend you know that album. Also, also Killer Mike's rap music, which was yeah. produced by LP, um, and that's what started them to become Run the Jewels. Basically, they worked together on that, and then they formed a group. Um, we haven't we haven't said any sort of older classic stuff, have we? Really? But, um, well, I'll yeah, probably yeah. Co- contribute go, go on that. It, I, it, I think it. I'm looking at uh, Genius Rizzo's um, Liquid Swords is yeah. one of my favourites, right. which is good, and it kind of reminds me of the Jim Jarmusch film, you know, with Forrest Whitaker, which is. Uh, What's it called? Go, uh, 
something about uh, it, it, anyway it's about pigeon lofts and yeah. and samurais etc yeah. you know, it's pretty amazing classic um, yeah. I think some of the old school stuff for me I mean I do like um, Jurassic 5's Concrete Schoolyard oh, so, yeah. well the album's actually called something else so that's yeah. the main track from it yeah and um, I do like Dead Prez's output as well, as well. Mm. I think it's a kind of pretty uncompromising kind of, uh, mm. sort of, you know, sort of political band, although not so much the track hip hop, but I find that that's the one that gets played and actually yeah. there's far more interesting stuff yeah. that they did. And then, it's you know, probably scary. going back to the more, you know, De La Soul and, and, and you know, one or two of the others. Mm. But I will admit that my engagement with it has been less active in the last sort of yeah. 10 years or so. So uh, looking forward, this is really reigniting the fire I have to say having this debate mm. so anyway that's hip hop um, debated and um, <laughs> put to bed and sort of discussed and put to bed by us <laughs> after this break we're going to be talking about sleep of mods Right, after our discussion of hip-hop there, we're going to move on to another kind of spoken word um, release, which is the third album in, I think, pretty much as many years, um, from Sleaford Mods, who, despite the name, are not from Sleaford, they're actually from Nottingham. Uh, I assume that they have been to Sleaford. And their album is rather gloriously titled English Tapas, apparently as a result of uh, the keyboard player... Um, seeing a pub um, chalkboard at some point with English tapas on it and underneath things like scotch eggs, pork pies, chips, that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that's interesting for me about this album is that it's kind of more of the same compared to the last two. And in fact, they had a few albums when they were complete unknowns before that, mm. which I'm not sure many people have delved back into. Um, and yet it's been sort of greeted pretty warmly with some good reviews mm. across the board. And I think the suspicion is that this is because things aren't that great at the moment and they tend to be sort of social commentators par excellence and if anything the way they approach things is argued that it's more relevant now than even it was two or three years yeah. ago what were your thoughts on, on, on English tapas fellas well I'll go first because I think yeah. I have less to say maybe even than Josh yeah. I, I can't shake the feeling that to your point Rob they, they have done something quite calculated about the zeitgeist and they've approached certain subjects in order to gain those four out of five reviews in The Guardian because they are rapping about Brexit or whatever, or at least talking about Brexit. Um, I, didn't, I didn't love it. I tried to like it, but there was something about it which I couldn't, I couldn't quite find it in myself to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about them. So how is it different from their first two albums? Well, the last two albums. I mean, it's slightly more singing, only okay. slightly, but slightly more, and a little bit more musical experimentation. I think it was like willfully uh, mono on the, on the last two albums. You know, just the guy with a very simple kind of Casio keyboard. I mean, famously, they've actually said that they're making a lot of money because they don't have many costs. <laughs> you know, so that you know they, they don't they have to hop on the bus yeah, to go yeah. to a gig rather than rather yeah. than hiring a massive bus. Um, but yeah, slight. There's a little bit more experimentation, but I wouldn't put it up with the level of, say, Dirty Projectors, whose album we're going to be reviewing on the next episode, <laughs> um, in terms of sonic kind of creation, or for that matter, many of the hip hop bands that we've mm. talked about today. Mm. So it's pretty simple. It reminds they remind me a bit of a band called Prince Horn Dance School, who were around like about ten years ago. And they were from Brighton and very arty, and it was like re you know very monosyllabic voice. Mm. 
kind of you know um you know so yeah not not huge i, I think it's it's I, I i joked when we put the album on i had the album on in the car and i joked to my girlfriend i said oh um, she said oh stephen mods and i said no it's not them and she said what really so yeah yeah um, um josh what about you what are your thoughts uh so probably a fairly similar reaction i think i would sort of describe it as an album i kind of appreciated but i didn't necessarily love um i think it just doesn't really have a lot of the elements about albums that i would keep coming back i think one of the reasons that it, i found it quite hard to enjoy is that there's just so little dynamics in every song it's normally one drum loop maybe um sort of one bass line a couple of bits of keys and it just becomes a bit relentless after a while and i i think i could kind of appreciate that maybe it's trying to be a bit of a comment about the monotony of life, you know, under austerity and all that sort of stuff. But then I sort of found out they've been doing it for a little while. So I don't know, maybe it's been monotonous for a while. Um, so I, I think I kind of get the aesthetic of it. And I understand they've made a deliberate choice to do that. And that's absolutely kind of fine. Some of the lyrics on here are just actually really funny. That one of them like, I had an organic chicken, it was shit. You know, I, I thought that kind of made me laugh. Yeah, they, they sort of, there's a wryness to it. And I think there is a bit of a self-awareness to it. Um, it kind of, I tried to, I hadn't heard of them before. So uh, I tried to listen through it without reading anything or just give it a listen. and was a bit like, yeah, it's, I kind of get what it's trying to do, but it's not really, um, you know, pressing my buttons, if I'm honest. But, yeah, I mean, I think my main yeah. issue with it Really, I mean, I, I think there's a place for them, certainly, and I think yeah, they're coming up some good it's, comments, you know, it's, but, but it, it's just not for me. <laughs> I think maybe for me, without having really pulled over the lyrics, it's the nihilism that I maybe have an issue with. Mm. Um, if you think that, not musically, but in some respect, they're kind of latter-day, um, sort of, you know, successes of someone like Billy Bragg, who was mm. also, like, you know, very, very simple musical artist back in the 80s. Mm. But, you know, everything he did was, like, you know, actively trying to make the world better, mm. you know. Yeah, like, his sure. lyrics were very critical of the Thatcher regime. It was very um, progressive. And, uh, and mm. I just wonder about Sleep of Mods. It's just like listening to a guy in the pub moaning, <laughs> really. And I think after a while, you know, that does begin to pull. And that's why yeah. I'm a little bit surprised that that you know the album's been so well received yeah so you know? I mean obviously like, alcohol consumption seems to be a pretty strong theme yeah um, you know sort of throughout and sort of that self-medication idea I suppose but um, that isn't really necessarily a solution is it I mean yeah no I mean it does sum up modern Britain in many ways you know <laughs> cr- crappy chain pubs you know litter strewn high streets etc but spa. then again it's probably been like that for a while now you know yeah um, and um, yeah I think that's the main thing I think where where where, where will it end to, to quote Ian Curtis you know when you know is it just I, I just don't know what it's for ultimately and mm. I'd be very surprised if their next album is greeted with as much kind of enthusiasm yeah. I mean we, depending on what I get this up we've had some encouraging news today politically in the, the Dutch election yes the fascists right. ended up being sort of blown out of <laughs> the water and I think there is going to be a kind of a hope a reaction mm. against mm. some of the rubbish stuff in society from now on and it's not just all going to be Trump and Brexit and all the rest of it I think people are fighting back yeah. um, but to do that you've got to come up with something constructive you know yeah. some some alternative of our own and yeah. um, I don't know there's a place for them but I, I mean like and also just simply listening to it more than two or three times yeah, is, I, I'm not know, going to go back to this I don't think and sort of to enjoy it yeah David any final thoughts on well it? can I just make one comment on the album title it's got nothing to do with the music mm. but um, it just reminds me of an anecdote which Ben Woolhead who used to be on this podcast now is in Cardiff 
uh, told me about he was listening to Spotify, Spotify, sorry, and um, they, they it started to suggest playlists to him, mm. um, and uh, he said, "Well, basically, my life was over once I realised that one of the playlists that had been recommended to me was called Indie Brunch." Indie Brunch. <laughs> He's yeah. like, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> what have I become? <laughs> Indie Brunch. I think English Tapas is always going to make me think of that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that could be a good name for their next album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, if you heard a phone in the background, which you hopefully didn't pick up, that was in the room outside our very expensive studio here. And it might well have been either Neil or Ben <laughs> ringing in to complain about being described as late of this parish. <laughs> but I think both are still hoping to make appearances on future podcasts, particularly Neil, I think. Um, but Ben's done a great job on Twitter to sort of publicising our podcast and like publicising some local Cardiff music so I, I do um, sort of urge you to check out our Twitter feed um, thanks very much to Josh and to David for coming back yeah, certainly won't be the last time for either of you very very enjoyable discussion so just a quick word on the on the very basic social media overwhelmingly the way people have wanted to get in touch with us is via Twitter so that's at SoundingBoard69 we do have a Facebook presence and we're going to try and get up what's going to be a hotly debated playlist to reflect this episode on uh, um, Spotify in the next few days Um, sorry for the delay as well it's quite a while since episode 13 we're hoping as I said at the start to get a couple of new episodes up within the next month or so Um, so thank you for listening